Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon entitled, Alive by the Spirit. chapter 8, continuing to work through this book together. We're going to specifically be reading verses 9 through 11, Romans 8, 9 through 11. And while we're doing the transition and you're turning and such, um, let me pass along a few things to you. We actually have a lot that we need to pass on today. A lot of announcements and things. Um, so I sent out an email this week. If you do that kind of thing, if you get them and such, uh, we're going to have a meeting after the service today. Um, there's been uh, some good developments with the building and uh, meeting today lets us move forward without a hiccup. So we're going to do that today. And then we just got a lot of stuff we want to pass on. So if you're a member, please absolutely stay. But even if you're not a member and you kind of consider this your church, you know, where you go and you're considering membership, please stay around because we've got like really important stuff to pass on, good announcements. Um, all of them are delightful today. Um, I'm not aware of any controversial ones, so all that's good. We love those days. Uh, so please stick around for that. Um, one more thing I want to tell you just even before we get into the text here. Um, uh, as we have spent some time talking about for the last several months, um, there is a movement of Christians in our nation who are appealing to the church, um, anyone who would be willing, but specifically appealing to the church to very intentionally, very specifically humble ourselves before the Lord, repent and pray for the nation. Um, I agree with this movement, not in every single statement that is made. We would be joining with some other groups of believers that we might have tertiary issues and such we would disagree on. But one thing is clear, there is an urgency. If we are interpreting this, that the Lord is sending judgment slash discipline, there is a need for the church to lead the way in humbling ourselves before him, repenting, casting ourselves at his feet, and then praying on behalf of the nation, as we see happen numerous times throughout the scripture. So this movement is calling for September the 26th, that is a Saturday, to be a day of repentance and prayer. The following day, Sunday the 27th, we're going to, um, we're going to take part in this. Um, I'm going to preach on repentance. There's some other stuff I hope to get to. Um, how the kingdom of God is going to swallow up every other kingdom, how we as citizens of the heavenly kingdom live as temporary citizens of earthly kingdoms in this time. But if nothing else, we're going to spend some time praying for our nation, humbling ourselves and seeking to repent ourselves. So I tell you that so you can be thinking that direction and spiritually preparing before we get to that day. All right, let's turn our attention and hearts of worship to the word of God. Romans 8, let's begin in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Sovereign God, Lord, we ask that you would give us grace um, right now. Father, we have things that we desire. Um, We long to be encouraged, strengthened, comforted. All of these are very happy things when they occur by your grace. But Father, our greater prayer is that you would be glorified. Our greater prayer, oh God, is that you would get what you deserve. Lord, that we would come to deeper worship that not just the happy things would happen inside of us, but also the difficult things like being convicted of our sin, like being um, drawn to humble ourselves before you, like seeing seeing some of the evil in our hearts that we've not seen before. Father, we ask for you to work these things in us, but God, and then going farther, we just long to be transformed in a way that we live lives that are constantly pointing people to you. Father, that the fires of worship and zeal would be built up inside of us in such a way that, Lord, we leave here, we go on, we live our lives, and every single day we are living in such a way that we're helping the world understand you, and we're constantly speaking of you, O Lord, calling all of the earth to come to Christ. So, Father, we pray that first and central, you will glorify your name. We pray you show us more of yourself, show us the glories of what you've done in Christ, the glories of the gospel. Father, come to your people, work these things. And we also ask, oh God, both in this room and in the children's Lord, any souls that have not yet turned to Christ, not repented of sin, trusted in him to be saved. God, we pray that today it would happen and that you would use this time of worship, oh God. Please give us grace to see. Please give us of your Holy Spirit, oh Lord. We will not have any spiritual benefit come if you do not. So please give us your spirit. Open our eyes, transform, work, protect this time. Give me grace to be useful. And Lord, we pray all these things through the name of Christ. Amen. When Israel was in the wilderness, after they had left Egypt, and actually after they had constructed the tabernacle that we've spent some time talking about, And they were making their way to the promised land that first time. There came another critical moment when the people began to grumble and complain about their circumstances. Moses comes before the Lord and prays, and it's not exaggeration, he literally prays this to the Lord. Lord, if it's going to be like this, just kill me now. (laughs) Um, If it's going to be this burdensome, just take my life from me. I can't handle this myself. And God instructed Moses, go gather 70 of the elders of Israel, bring them, and I will take of the spirit that I have put in you, and I will put him on them. So Moses does this. He calls out the names, and they're supposed to come gather to Moses. Most of them do, and when they come and gather, God takes of the spirit that he had put on Moses, and he put it on these elders. But there were two of the men who didn't gather to Moses. They stayed in the camp. We're never told why. But God poured out his spirit on these two men as well. 
And when God poured out his spirit on them as a kind of demonstration that this was happening, they began to prophesy. Now, when Joshua saw that these two men were prophesying, Joshua got upset and he ran to Moses to kind of tell on him. He runs to Moses and he goes, Eldad and me, dad are prophesying, make them stop. And Moses replies, are you jealous for my sake, Joshua? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. In the old covenant, God's spirit did not fill every single believer. And Moses dreamed of a day, like imagine, like, wouldn't it be amazing if there would be a day that God's spirit was among all of his people? Well, later in the prophets, God actually declared that that day would come. There would be the days of the Messiah when not only all of those who were of the Jews who were saved would have of God's spirit, but God would do something that had never been done in history. God would draw souls from all of the nations, all of the tribes and peoples and all who would come to him, confess him as Lord and would be saved. He would pour out his spirit on all of them. And as the prophets speak of this, it's like with this dreamy kind of language, like imagine a day when all of God's people have this grace. In Joel chapter two, which is a passage we referenced last week as we talked about the day of Pentecost, in Joel 2, God said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions. In other words, the works of the spirit of God will be a regular thing in the days of the Messiah. Well, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit came upon those believers. And when the crowds asked what was happening, the apostles responded, the prophets are fulfilled. What God has promised, it is coming about. And he quoted this passage in Joel. And so Christian, what this means is that we are in days that are unlike the old covenant. We're in these days that God promised where his spirit will come upon all of those who are in Christ. The day that Moses dreamed of, it's here. Now that can leave some pretty big questions though. Because you could think, man, you know, it kind of just doesn't seem all that exciting. Moses dreamed of this day that the spirit would come because sometimes we can look around at believers and at the church and it doesn't seem real supernatural. You know, we're not all like levitating six inches above the ground, passing wherever we go. Sometimes it just doesn't seem all that exciting what is happening. And so what's the big deal of the spirit indwelling us? Well, what we have been seeing in Romans 8 are these ways that God is using his spirit to work on those who are in Christ. And part of what we have been seeing is that the way that the spirit works in us is a way that oftentimes just appears very normal. It doesn't always seem exceptional. Most often it doesn't look supernatural. He does things like we saw in verse five, he leads us to set our minds on the things of the spirit. We're coming to verse 14, where he's going to say that God's spirit helps us to get sin out of our lives. 
doesn't seem real sexy sometimes. But part of what we have to realize is that when we come to full understanding, when our minds are set right, when our minds are brought to purity, we will understand what a big deal this is. We will understand how vile our sin is and how beautiful and wonderful holiness actually is. And we will come to see that this work that God is doing in us, it is supernatural because it's something that cannot take place apart from him. Man likes to think he can transform himself. Man is completely incapable of doing so. But God works a miracle in his people of real, noticeable transformation. It happens slow. It's not the flip of a switch. But we've been seeing in Romans 8 here this work that God is doing to make his people holy. And then to empower us for the work of serving. And in this chapter, we've been working through nine works of the Holy Spirit, nine ways that he is bringing grace and bringing, transforming us. So thus far, we have seen he changes the course of our life. We saw here he changes the, the, the way that we think. He enables us to please God. He indwells us. This morning, we're going to consider specifically verses 10 through 11. There's a bit in verse nine. So we're going to include that as well, where we're told that he gives us life, life now, and life to come. So I'm gonna divide this, this message into three parts. So uh, letter A, I'm gonna work us through the passage just to make sure we understand the verses and what they're saying. Letter B, we're gonna take a bit of a parenthesis from the main point because there's something else shown to us about the triune nature of God. I know it maybe sounds kind of a sophisticated way of saying it, just mean we're shown about the Trinity. We're given insights into who God is and the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we're going to look at that and then let us see. We're going to see how life comes through the Spirit. So the fourth work of the Spirit in our lives is the Spirit gives us life. So let's walk through the text. We saw last week in verse 9, anyone who is in Christ, so this is the language of justification. So this is language of what we've seen. The, the living God calls to all the earth and says, turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. If you've never heard this message before, if you are not familiar with the Bible, the chief message you need to hear above all others is that God says there's eternal life that is available, but you can miss it. The only way that you will have eternal life is if you turn to Christ to be saved from your sins and saved from the hell that you deserve and that you really are heading to if you are not attached to Christ. All who come to him in the way that he says, turning from our sins, that's what the Bible calls repentance, to turn away from rebellion, to come throw yourself at the feet of God and trust in Christ, calling out to him to be saved. All who come to him are made right with him. At that moment, you become what the Bible says. The Bible describes this in a lot of ways. One of the words that it gives here is you become in Christ. For all who are in Christ, Christ, you are indwelt by the spirit of God in Christ. You have the spirit of God. Well then come to verse 10. 
Notice the language that's there. If Christ is in you, so this is continuing the thought from verse nine. This is addressing specifically you who are in Christ, justified Christians. So if this is not you, if you have not turned to Christ, all of these beautiful graces we're talking about today, they're not yet yours. They can be yours even before you leave this room today. Turn to Christ. But the you that is being spoken here, this is to you who are justified believers, you've turned to Christ. If Christ is in you, all right, here's the next phrase. Though the body is dead because of sin, all right, pause there. Again, it's repeated um, that sin has brought death to us. The only reason why death comes to the human body is because of sin that was introduced back at the garden and the curse that God gave. The wages of sin is death. And even for the justified Christian, there is a way that we are still going to experience the effects of the curse. So we've been looking at all this beautiful truth that Christ has saved us from the curse ultimately. But we do have to understand that God has not immediately taken us out of this world. You and I are still living with the curse, okay? That's your aching back. That's the pain. That's 2020. Living in a cursed world and part of the effects of the curse that we still live with is death is in the body. So even though we're going to see that there is life that is to come and there's a way that life is already at work in us, we have not yet escaped the reality that death is still present in the body. And so we're going to see this language that is used. There is life in the spirit of the believer, death in the body of the believer as we wait for the coming resurrection. So though the body is dead because of sin, but I want you to also watch this. We're in a cursed world. We feel the effects of the curse and we have enemies. When God redeems, he redeems all the way. And when God redeems his people, he causes even their enemies to serve them. God is working in a way that every single one of your enemies is somehow at work for your greater joy. The man who spits in your face because of the name of Christ is only being used of God to make your reward and your resurrection to come better. God causes every enemy of his people to serve them and that includes death. Death is your enemy, but God has now worked that the death of the body is the event that now brings you into the presence of the Lord. And so in, in a wonderful kind of way, there is still pain. There is still difficulty with death, but death is no longer harming you. That's why that language of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, mocking death, I love it, mocking death. Where, O oh, death, is your victory and your sting? It's like God has taken the snake called death and he reached in and he ripped out its venom sacs. Death is going to bite and you're going to feel the fangs, but listen, there's no venom behind them. 
The Christian will die in the body, but then immediately be brought into the presence of the Lord. The body is going to die unless Jesus comes in your lifetime. And then there will be a similar kind of miracle, a transformation kind of miracle. But the sting of death has been taken away. You will die, but the Christian body dies with hope. But we got to bear that in mind. Death is still at work in the body. So the body is dead because of sin. Now look at the next sentence here, the next phrase. Yet, look at the good news. Yet, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, depending on which translation of the Bible you got in your laps right now, you've seen a little difference. The New American Standard interprets the word spirit here with a lowercase s referring to your spirit. And says, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if you got an ESV on your lap, it interprets this. Instead of saying that the, the spirit is alive, it says the spirit is life. So you can see in the translation of a Greek word how you could, you could see both of those, alive or life. So we're, we're forced to kind of make a decision here. Which one of these is the right take on this? Is it that your spirit is alive or is it that the spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, capital S, he is life and peace in us. Well, I'm always thankful for the times where um, no matter which one of these we take, we're going to arrive at truth. Okay. Uh, because whether we are saying your spirit is alive because the Holy Spirit is in you, or we are saying the spirit, he is life and he is in you. Therefore, your spirit is alive. We're arriving at the exact same destination. So which one of these um, is the right one? I tend to lean with it saying it is referring to your spirit, but I'm biased because I mostly read the New American Standard. Either way, for the justified Christian, you are alive. Life is in you, but it is because of the spirit of God being in you because of the righteousness, all that has happened in justification, the righteousness of Christ being counted as yours. Life has come to you. Well, now verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Okay. So who is it who raised Jesus from the dead? Ultimately, well, this is the father. By the way, that's not only stated here, this is repeated throughout the New Testament. Like actually when you do a word study on it, it's said a lot. God the father raised his son from the dead. So, so follow the language. If the spirit, he, of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the father. So the spirit of the father, if he is in you, he will also give life to your mortal bodies. So, so here's the argument. And it's a beautiful one, by the way. The father raised his son from the dead. And the father dwells in you by his spirit who dwells inside of you. So conclusion, he will raise you from the dead just like he did his son. Your body is going to die but the father who raised his son, his spirit lives in you. He will raise your mortal bodies at the right time. When Christ returns and there is the resurrection of the dead, the father will raise your body. So understand, we do talk about the fact that when a believer dies right now, your spirit departs to go be with the Lord. The body decays, it remains a part of this corrupt world. 
the body will decompose, but you are not just a bodiless spirit for all of eternity. God created your body and he is, uh, he means for you throughout eternity to be body and soul complete, enjoying the joys of the spirit and the body. So you will depart to go to be with the Lord, but God is also going to raise the body at the resurrection. So there is the promise here. This is the argument. God is in you, Father, Son, and Spirit. The triune God is dwelling in you by the Spirit dwelling in you. And so if you have God living within you, you have life. You are alive even right now in one sense, in one way. And you are going to be brought to a greater life in the age to come in the future. Death is in your body. Life is in your spirit. This is this strange dichotomy of the Christian. It's this strange place that we live in the time between the times. The believer, you and I have both life and death at work in us. Death in the body, life in the spirit. And there is a fullness of life to come. Resurrection is coming. And what the text is saying is you can take it to the bank because God has chosen to come and dwell inside of you. So that's the basic argument that the, the text lays out. So we're going to do two things from here. First, you've noticed us talking a lot about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is one of those passages that gives us some more insights into who God is, into the, the mystery of the Trinity. So before we move on and spend time meditating on what is the main point, which is how life comes by the Spirit, what is this life, I want to take a pause here, a bit of a parenthesis. The Bible does this a lot. While it is teaching one thing, it's teaching a hundred things. And to drink it all in, we need, to, we need to kind of pause and look at these kinds of things. So uh, what I want to do here, I want to pause for just a, just, just a quick 10-minute-ish little section. Think on what we're shown about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit living inside of us. And I think that that's going to lead us to an even deeper understanding of how it is that life comes to us by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit abiding in us. So let her be the triune nature of God. That can sound kind of academic, so here, here is it stated more simply. Verses 9 through 11 show us some insights into this mystery of how God, who is one, exists in three persons. Now, we got to do some like abstract thinking here. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Okay, It's in the Bible. The Bible calls us to do a lot of different kinds of thinking. If you're a numbers person... There are parts of the Bible that are for you, but there are parts that are kind of abstract. So no matter what, we're leaning in, we're following along here with this, but some difficult, deep thinking. This like pushes us to the limits of our brain capabilities. And this is even God dumbing it down for us to try to bring us to understanding. But back up to verse nine, let's look at the language that goes all through these three verses. I want to point some of these things. So verse nine, here's the argument. You Christian, you are in the spirit if the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit, he is the third person of the Trinity. He is the spirit of God referring to the father, the first person of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit, he is a he, he is a person, not an it, and he's not a 
weird mystical force out there. He is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. He was just called the spirit of the father. And then now look at the next sentence in verse nine. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, so no, notice what we see here. There aren't two spirits being referred to. There's not the spirit of the father and then a different spirit of Christ. No, no, no. The same spirit, he is the spirit of the father and the spirit of Christ. The father and the son share the same spirit. And then keep going. The father and the son share the same spirit. If the spirit is in you, then God the father is in you. And then when you come to verse 10, look at the implication that is spelled out clearly. Christ is in you. He is in you. Second person of the Trinity is in you through his spirit. So notice just the very clear conclusion that we're shown here. If the Holy Spirit is in you, then the Father is in you. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, then Christ is in you because he is the spirit of the Father and of the Son. So to try to bring our minds to some kind of understanding, you and I, you know, we have a spirit, okay? That is a part of who you are. But your spirit is not its own individual person. God has made us in his image. There are many, many ways that we are like him, but God has not made us exactly like him. He's infinite, we're finite. You have a spirit, but you are just one person. God has a spirit, and his spirit is his own person. And he shares the same spirit with his son. He is his own person. He relates to God in such a way that there are not three gods. There are not two gods. There is one God, but in three persons. I know, mysterious, glorious, pushing the limits of our brain. The father is not the son. They're not the same person. The son is not the spirit. They're not the same person, three distinct persons, but united together as one. The spirit, he is a person distinct from the father, yet their union is one of perfection. Now let's go to enough, a different conclusion here because kind of keep taking this further and deeper. I want you to notice that without even arguing for it, Paul is speaking of Jesus as divine. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying by that? Paul calls the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ. Okay, that means that he is speaking of Jesus as divine with the father. Now I get it that when you hear that, you could be saying like, okay, yeah, we learned that when we were five. Okay, thanks for that. Let me tell you one of the reasons why that matters. Now, today we're doing a little bit of technical stuff, maybe more so than most Sundays. I debate sometimes whether to get into some of this stuff, but I've just decided I'd rather say the stuff that I know at some point are gonna be a benefit to you. At some point, you are going to encounter some jacked up views of the Bible and, and, and at some point it's helpful to have dealt with this. So let me just kind of introduce it a little bit. Within academia, and you know, there's this whole academic realm of Christianity. And oftentimes this theological, liberal, academic Christianity has a prideful elevation of the thoughts of man. 
And they're constantly leaving the Bible to go to, you know, not only try to be more appealing to the world and to do away with supernatural so that we don't look stupid, but leaving the Bible for the thoughts of man. Constantly you have this happening. Have you ever known someone who went to go get educated and they came back dumber? Okay. It happens. We sometimes say about theological liberalism, no one is naturally dumb enough to believe it. You have to go to school for that. Okay. Like there are, there are some ways because, and, and the reason I'm bringing this up is this really is happening in a great deal of our seminaries. This really is happening that there is this theological liberalism and then the church is raising up men for ministry. They go off to seminary for four or maybe even up to 10 years if they go get their doctorate and they may spend a decade studying lies and they come back dumber and they come back and they've learned to use really big words and they've learned how to use philosophy to undo the Bible. And they'll come back and they'll say stuff that my eight-year-old can see the holes in because you got to go to school to get that dumb. But part of what we're getting at here is, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to introduce here some of why we need to look at some of this stuff. And what happens is it influences preachers. Preachers come to the churches. They preach in the churches. And then what happens? America 2020. Guys, this has been happening for a century, a century, and it still continues so at some point in Romans, we needed to bring this kind of stuff up. There has been a movement within this kind of academia that has said things like, what Paul taught is different than what Jesus taught. Have you ever heard this? The theology of Paul is different than the theology of Jesus. At some point, you're gonna encounter a person who says that they're a Christian, but they'll say some things like, but listen, I don't like Paul. I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't follow Paul. I don't like any of his stuff. I just believe Jesus. Um, red letter Christianity, you may have heard of. That's, that's where I only follow the words of Jesus, nothing else in the Bible. Now, one of the reasons why it's so ignorant is even many of our eight-year-olds know, well, didn't Jesus quote scripture and say that scripture cannot be broken? Didn't Jesus refer to the scripture as the living word of God? Didn't Jesus quote David and say, David in the spirit said, okay, so like it's a jacked up view of inspiration. Is God's word God breathed or not? Can scripture contradict scripture? Okay, but academic Christianity says we're too smart to be that childish. But here's one of the accusations we've already dealt with in Romans, even though I don't think I ever brought it up. One of the accusations from this group is the gospel that Paul preached is different from the gospel that Jesus preached. That's why when we were going through Roman, uh, three and four, Romans three and four, and we were really doing heavy justification by faith, one of the things that we kept doing is we kept going back to the gospels and I kept showing you, this is exactly what Jesus said, okay? There's not a different gospel here because some of them will say some things like, when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you so that you don't go to hell, they say that's different than what Paul said. And what we kept looking at is, no, Jesus is preaching. Here's what repentance is. Here's what repentant faith looks like. Just like in Romans nine, we're going to see Paul show here's what true faith is. True faith is a repentant faith. So we spent some time with that. Okay. You with me so far? Here's the next part. Here's another one of those places 
Some have said there's a contradiction in the Bible because Paul never says that, that Jesus is divine. And so the argument goes, John, so like the gospel of John, we know that like really strongly he argues for the deity of Christ. But then some of these will say Paul never does that. So it appears Paul just didn't even believe that Jesus was divine. He just thought of him as a mere man that God used to be our redeemer. And it is interesting. When you read through Paul's letters, there is not ever a time that Paul argues for the deity of Christ, like the gospel of John does, for instance. So why not? How do we, what are we supposed to see here? Well, let me say two things about that. Number one, no, Paul in his letters never sets out to prove the deity of Christ, but in many of the things he says, it is clear that he believes it, like verses 9 through 11, referring to Jesus as divine. He calls the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. They, the Father and the Son, share the same Spirit that is speaking of Jesus as equal with the Father in deity. Jesus is not a mere man. He is the eternal divine Son of God. Listen, God used different biblical authors to accomplish different purposes. They don't all do the same thing. God gave us what we need, and He inspired different authors to give us different sections of what we need. The second thing, Paul operates in his teaching, whenever you read his letters, he's assuming that every Christian already knows that Jesus is divine. Remember, Jesus appeared to Paul gloriously from heaven. Jesus spoke to Paul from heaven. Paul never wrestled with, is Jesus divine or not? From the very first moment of his faith, it was clear and in fact, do you know what the very first heresy concerning Jesus was in the church? The very first heresy, the question over who is Jesus, how do we understand his, his nature and all of these things, the very first one was not, is Jesus divine? The early church did not have trouble with that. Instead, the trouble they had was, how can he be man? Because they accepted, they understood that he came from the Father. He came from heaven. He is divine. But if he is God, then how can he be man? And so that's why in the, in the book of Colossians, that letter that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to that church, the letter of Colossians deals with what we, we sometimes call the Colossian heresy. There were some in that place who were teaching Jesus is divine, therefore there's no way he could have actually become a man. He must have just been like a phantom of floating around on the earth. He didn't actually have a human body. And so Paul writes to show, here's Colossians 2.9, in him, that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's part of the gospel section of Colossians. All right. So all that might've been more than you wanted, but it will serve you at some point, I promise. Scripture cannot be broken. Romans never sets out to prove things like this, but it is all in here when we just pause and look at the language. If you are in Christ, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Now I want to take all of that 
And now think more deeply on this whole. Here is how our life comes part of what he is saying. And I think it'll help us to understand it even deeper. So let her see. For you in Christ, because the spirit dwells in you, you have life. Jesus said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. God is the source of life, the fountain of life, author of life, origin of life, and he dwells in you. If the author of life dwells in you, you have life. The father is life and he is in you. Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life is in you. And the Holy Spirit who gives life, he is in you. Life is in you now. And there is the fuller, what Jesus referred to as the life indeed that is to come at the resurrection. So think with me from this perspective of the whole plot line of the Bible, the whole unfolding of the redemptive plan of God. At creation in Genesis 2, 7, we see that on the sixth day, God took the dust and he formed it together to create Adam. But at that moment, when God formed the dust into the shape of the man and God put in him all of the systems, the blood that was flowing and God created the DNA and all of this mysterious, amazing stuff, Adam was not yet alive. But there came a moment, here's the next phrase in Genesis 2, 7, God breathed into Adam the breath of life and man became a living being. God is the source of life. There is no life outside of him animating his creatures. There is no other creator. There is, there, there is no other spring from which life is possible. It's not that God gives life to his creatures or some creatures and that Satan gives life to some others. It's not that there is any way that life spontaneously erupts. No, the universe is not like that phrase from Jurassic Park, life will find a way. No, even Satan, the fallen angel himself, derives the continuation of his existence from the God who made him. All creatures, physical and heavenly, derive their continued existence from the sustaining work of God. And those who are alive in the fullest definition of the world, and yes, yes, I, I am making a distinction between existence and life because the Bible makes this distinction. There are creatures that exist but are not alive like demons. Those demons are conscious. They think, they feel, but they are not alive because in the full definition of what life is, it is something that is higher than just being there, than just existing. All creatures, earthly, physical, heavenly, spiritual, all that God has made continue to exist or live from the sustaining work of the creator. Now, where do I get that from? Here's some places I get that from. Hebrews 1.3. We're told that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Or Colossians 1.7. He, Jesus, is before all things and in him all things hold together. 
Why do electrons continue to exist and spin? Because Jesus is ordering them to. In all of the physical universe, all of the galaxies that we're able to reach out and see with all of their mysteries, the solar systems, all that we are able to comprehend, how do they keep functioning? How do they keep rotating? How does it all happen? We are told it is because Christ from his throne at the right hand of the father is continuing his work of holding it all together. God would not have to work to destroy the universe he made. He would only have to stop. He would only have to stop providing the sustaining grace that he is. Take all of that and apply it to life as well. It is not just that God has given creatures that are alive a dose of life and then leaves them. Well, the Bible leads us to see a continuous work of God sustaining, both in the mystery of how do you define what life is on one level, but all the way to the very practical things where Jesus said that even when a bird eats a worm, the father provided and is keeping that bird alive. Guys, this is big. This is a vast universe. And God is continuing this grace. We also see the illustration that Jesus used in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me as the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Jesus went on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. A branch that is not attached and bearing fruit is cast away into the fire. Our life flows from the life that is in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It flows into us by means of our attachment to him. So always keep that picture in your minds. A branch that is attached to the vine has nutrients, sap, water, life flowing into it. Its ability to live and bear fruit only comes from its attachment. All right. So again, think back to creation. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Man became a living being. Right after that verse, the very next thing that we're told, this is amazing. We're told about the garden that God had planted, where God planted all kinds of beautiful and delicious trees, a place of life. And then right after that, we're immediately told about the tree of life. Adam and Eve would continue to live by this provision of God giving them from the tree of life. Immediately after that, what's the next thing we're told? We're told about a river that flowed out of Eden and then turned into other rivers. And there's this picture of a river of life flowing out of the place of life, giving life to the rest of creation. God is life, creates life, creates a place of life, with a tree of life, there's a river of life flowing out and giving life. God told them that on the day they ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, they would die. Adam and Eve ate. They did not physically die immediately, but a kind of death came into their bodies. Spiritual death occurred. They became detached from the vine. 
all of the blessings of what comes from being in union with the living God, being attached to him in that fullness of way. And one of those blessings being not just existence, not just the body being able to breathe, but what this life full, eternal life indeed is, flows from attachment to God. Adam and Eve were cut off at that moment. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And one of the reasons that God specifically mentions why they were kicked out was so that they could not reach out and eat from the tree of life, which was how God was providing for their continued fullness of life. And so they died. They did not physically die that day, but there was a spiritual death and death and decay came into the body that would eventually lead to the death of the body. And so we have that picture of the place of life, the garden of life, the tree of life, and then comes death and they're removed from this. And guys, that's why when we come to the prophets and especially in the New Testament, as Jesus stands up to preach, so much of what he said has this level of significance that is, it's so much deeper than, than what we just initially see unless we spend some time with it. This life that God has once again begun to give in redemption to all who are in Christ, the redemption that Jesus has brought is bringing this restoration of all things. It's actually one of the themes of the book of John. So you could read through the book of John this afternoon, take you about an hour or so, and you would just see this theme come up over and over again. Think about John 11, on the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus on purpose waited so that he would get there four days after Lazarus' death. He walks up to Martha, Lazarus' sister, and says, your brother will rise again. Martha thinks he's talking about the resurrection in the coming day. And so Martha says, I know my brother will rise at the resurrection. And Jesus responds and says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 5, 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He promises a future life, but he also says past tense. There is a life you come to right now. There is a way in which life comes to your spirit. Even right now, you were living in the realm of a different kind of death and you have been delivered out. Well, Jesus, it doesn't look like it. My body still hurts. I still get sick. It doesn't matter. Trust me. I have brought you into something bigger. And then if you'll join me, look at John chapter seven for a moment. John seven and find verse 37 and I'm winding down. John seven thirty-seven. This is just like spend the rest of the day on your face weeping kind of truth. John 7, 37, Jesus is at a feast. I just picture it. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Rivers 
of living water. Man, that kind of sounds like Eden. It almost sounds like the life that was in that place comes to the believer and there is a fountain, a river of life that is springing up, sustaining you throughout eternity, and it will never stop. This is, this is not a fountain that is ever going to run dry. This is a fountain that will continue to spring and provide life for all of eternity. And then here's the connection to Romans 8. Verse 39 says, this he spoke of the Spirit. The spirit who is life, who gives life, comes to the believer, dwells inside of us, springing up life through eternity. So how do you get life? Get the spirit. How do you get the spirit? Flee to Christ. Flee to Christ. In Eden, God made a place of life with a tree of life, with rivers of life, all flowing out of God who is life. In order to redeem us and to bring us to this, Jesus who is life left heaven to come to the place of death, climb a tree of death, and have rivers of death flow out of his wounds and cover the dust at Golgotha. So that Revelation 21 to 22 in the new heavens and the new earth, you want to know some of the cool stuff we're shown there in the new Eden, the new Jerusalem that is prepared for the people of God. There's a place of life. There's a tree of life. There's a river of life that flows from the throne of God, giving life to the rest of that kingdom, giving life. What we lost in the garden God is restoring and he has done it through his son. God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, giving life and bringing redemption. Christian, this means everything. This is everything. We talk about a lot, hundreds of the graces that God gives. This is not just another one of those graces. This is the one that makes it all else possible. Attached to the vine who gives life. This is everything. I, I, if you were here this morning for Sunday school, Logan gave just one of the greatest messages ever delivered in this building talking about the persecution of the believer. And there is a kind of way that if you hear what the Bible has to say, where Jesus invites us to come to himself and come and be persecuted, come and die, come and be hated. The call to come to Christ is not the call to an easier life. It is the call to a harder life. There is one sense in which we can hear that and go, then why would I want to come? Because there is life. This is what Jesus said to the apostles. After saying one of the hardest things he ever said, he looked at them and said, do you want to leave too? Because a whole bunch of the crowds walked away and they responded, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Christian, this is everything. 
And we've got to preach this to ourselves again and again to make it clear, this is why we do what we do. There are heartaches and difficulties and afflictions to following Christ, but it is all worth it because there is life in Christ. There are 100 applications to this truth. 100 is an understatement. From the fear of death, to the courage to go and do what God has called us to do, to giving up pleasures of this world in order to honor him. It is all rooted in the fact that we have life in Christ and there is the fullness of life to come. To you who are outside of Christ, the only thing that actually matters, you do not have. You may have money, but without eternal life, you will not care in the ages to come. Popularity, jobs, success, marriage, family, all kinds of earthly comforts, you may have them, but if you do not have life in Christ, the only thing that matters in the end, you are missing. Do not fool yourself and believe the lies of the world that everybody's just gonna be okay. The Bible calls to you and says, you must come to Christ. Repent, believe, and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your thousands and thousands of graces. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for the hope that you have given us. Thank you for the kingdom you've prepared for us. Thank you for bringing us into life. And God, we want to spend all of our eternity worshiping you for the mercy you have shown to us. You are glorious in all of your ways, but you're, the glory you have worked in saving us is the greatest glory we can comprehend. Help us, O oh God, as we're going to leave here in a little while. Give us grace, Father, that we will live in light of these truths and that it will bring absolute transformation, revolution to our thinking and inspire us to live in obedience and service and following after you, O oh God. Give us help, we pray, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.